For those of you visiting us this morning or joining us again perhaps for the first time after a long time, we'll remind you that as a church we do expository preaching. We don't preach a theme, although you might see that there is a, a theme in a text that we explore, but we rather endeavor to expound the whole word of God. As Sean mentioned, the freshest verse from Scripture, God promises that his word, when rightfully preached, will not return void. It'll produce one of two responses. It'll produce a response of contempt and rejection by those who are hardened soil, and it'll produce saving faith in Jesus Christ on the other hand. And it's our prayer this morning that as the word of God is preached, it will bring perhaps some to saving faith in Jesus Christ and to others, the ongoing sanctifying salvation that comes through being in close encounter with God's word. Let's ask the, the Lord for his direction as we draw near to his word, and then we'll begin examining it together in James chapter 1. Father God, we come before you this morning. We're grateful and needful and utterly dependent on your word. We pray, Lord God, that as we draw near to your word, that it would have its effect of convicting us, of cutting us deeply, of sanctifying us and making us more like your son, Jesus. For any in this room this morning that, that might tend rather to be offended by your word, may you soften their hearts. May they seek you while you will still be found. May they find repentance while you are near. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help that we would be attentive and willing students. In Jesus' precious name, amen. If you would open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, we'll continue our study at verse 19. You'll notice I say open your words because I have a particular bias to having a paper Bible with you. Not to say there's anything wrong with those of you who have applications with you, but we're going to encourage underlining as we endeavor to understand today's text. The Word of God from James chapter 1 beginning at verse 19. If you found it, I'll invite you to stand yet again to show reverence to this eternal Word of God. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You may be seated. 
as we've moved through the, the introductory portion of, of James, I say introductory, I think we're on week five now, we're moving through carefully and cautiously, and we're understanding so far that God has established for us in his word that trials are an opportunity for righteous obedience. We've also understood that when we're in the midst of trials, we have the opportunity to cry out to God and to ask him for wisdom, which he'll give freely right when we need it. We're also reminded that in the midst of trials, we're, we're prone in our sinfulness to temptation, but that temptation is not of God. And last week, we concluded by, by seeing the whole section that we've seen so far being based on the truth of what God has done for us. Verse 18, where we left off, said, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, verse 19, we uh, begin a new section. Some of your Bibles might actually have a new heading, and Bible translators have looked at James in a, an unusual way because there's so many kind of random things that are strung together. The translators look for key phrases at which to make a logical break. And one that's used on a couple of different occasions in the book of James is where he says, my beloved brothers or my brothers. He's joking with Brother Dave this morning that oftentimes at church we'll use the term brother when we can't remember somebody's name. Good morning, brother. Good morning, sister. Right? But James does this very intentionally to call attention, to bring emphasis, and often to transition from one theme to another. So if we approach this text at verse 19 and we assume that there's a logical break from verse 18 to verse 19 and we jump in and we start doing application without rightfully doing interpretation, we'll come up with results that don't accomplish in our lives what the Holy Spirit might be intending. You see, if we look at verse 19 and we see, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What we'll come up with is a, is a great practical message that could be applied by anyone. We could bring any unbelieving coworker to church this morning, and what they've got is a great morsel of wisdom that they can apply to their lives. Picture any conflict. Good recipe for avoiding conflict is be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But we'd be selling that so far short of what God has intended if we don't dig a little deeper. First of all, it says, know this, my beloved brothers. Sean shared on Friday night the notion that we are holy and that we are beloved. Precious words. Those reveal our identity as saints, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So this message isn't just for, for anyone. You could put it on your email signature file or you could apply it to any interaction you have. This is intended for blood-bought believers. It's also really important that even though the Bible translators put a break in here, from verse 18 to verse 19, there are some key words that James uses very cautiously, very carefully, that string this text together. And we'll see this from verse 18 all the way through verse 27, where we endeavor to finish today. The word we see is word. We also see a second theme in this, which is that of of seeds or fruit or harvest. So let's take a quick skim read through, have these in view, and then we'll endeavor to interpret and later apply. 
So verse 18 says, we're brought forth, we're saved, we are regenerated by his will, by the word of truth, that we would be the first fruits. So you might choose to underline word of truth and first fruits. Moving on, we see in verse 21, the reference to the implanted word. Implanted too brings to mind that same notion of, of fruit or seeds or harvest. Verse 22, we have be doers of the word. We can underline there. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word, you can underline it. And verse 25 refers to the perfect law, which is another terminology that James uses to refer to the word. As we move through this section, we'll see that the, the, the thread that James is weaving together is that of the work of the word. The work of the word of God, what does it do? Does it just bring about a moral reform and give us guidance on resolving conflicts? No. This is the, the key to obedient Christian living. So we come into verse 19 knowing that back in verse 18, the word of truth is what saves us. We start with that. It's a, it's a one-time faith being deposited in Jesus Christ that is what we call justification. We see this idea of, of salvation coming through the word. And then as we move into this next section, we'll see the work of the word of God in its ongoing salvation of believers. That's what we know as sanctification, the, the process of being made more like Christ as the word of God has its work in our hearts. Having said this, we should look at verse 19 again. This is not wisdom literature, right? We have wisdom literature like Proverbs will give us great, generally applicable statements. Proverbs 10, 19, and 20, for example, say, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked, of little worth. We find other Proverbs that talk about the, the way in which anger doesn't produce righteousness in the life of man. But really what James is beginning to signal here is the importance of applying the word of God. See, he begins with, let every person be quick to hear. This notion of quick to hear is one that James brings to us having been, in fact, a hearer of the God-man during his life on earth preaching Time after time, Jesus uses the expression, let he who has ears, let him hear. See, as I go through and I look at different commentaries on the book of James, I'm more and more compelled to see that James is himself a commentary writer on the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. So when he comes and he says, let every man be quick to hear, he's not talking about listening to someone else's perspective in the middle of a conflict. He's not talking about listening attentively to someone in our life that we care about. He's talking about listening intently to the declared word of God. Let each person be quick to hear. And then his second imperative, remember we established that the book of James has a lot of bossy statements. He's very imperative. He says, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. The slow to speak is one where there's a number of different interpretations. But MacArthur presents for us the view that the idea of being slow to speak is that once we have received the word of God, we ought to be cautious before it then begins to, to spill out of our mouths. And we see this notion with regards to, to biblical eldership. 1 Timothy 
3, verse 6, says that an elder, a leader of the church, one who preaches, shouldn't be a new believer. He needs to allow the work of the word to continue to such a way that he would have the rightful maturity before speaking. James himself says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. So when we look at this text, we're talking about allowing the word of God, which brings about salvation, to have its effect in us, that we would listen to it. Use our ears. We would listen. And then before we speak it, we would rightfully apply it. And then James jumps over and he changes gears somewhat abruptly and brings up a a new concept that we haven't seen so far in any part of chapter one. He brings up anger. He says, quick to listen to the word of God, slow to speak. We can infer that he's talking about slow to speak the word of God. And then he says, slow to anger. It says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Where does James get this? Well, as we know, as we've moved through studying and we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we see in Matthew chapter 5, you may choose to turn there briefly, starting at verse 21, Christ, in the middle of this discourse, brings up the topic of anger. And he brings up the topic of anger because it is itself an impediment to the work of the word. Anger that's not dealt with impedes the work of the word of God in our lives. You have heard it said, starting at verse 21 of Matthew 5, you have heard it said that it was of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A principle that that Christ delivers, unresolved anger impedes the work of the word in our lives. Another text that's worth exploring together is in the book of Hebrews. And we see here that this notion of how the word brings forth fruit in our lives is evidenced with an imperative where the author of Hebrews, right after discussing discipline, brings up the importance of dealing with unresolved anger and bitterness in our lives. The preacher of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. You see, the work of the work requires us to deal with anger and to pull out like weeds any root of bitterness in our lives. And that's why James begins with this because he says, if there's anger, if there's types of bitterness, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 20 of James chapter 1 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This, this idea of produce there is like a crop. It's like it's what it yields. If the word is working in us, we have to put that anger away. Verse 21, 
James continues with these imperatives, and he's bringing everything from a very negative light. This sounds heavy. If you were to be the recipient of this letter, as we are today, it's a very overt call to check yourself. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Those are intense words. For those of us who recall from the Old Testament, the term filthy is used in a couple of different, very vivid occasions. Once by the prophet Isaiah, when he talks about filthy rags, he's talking about menstrual garments, filthiness, something that certainly can't be brought into the, the presence of anything holy whatsoever. We also see that in the example of Joshua, the high priest, when God gives instructions, change his clothes, clothe them in clean garments, put away that filth. Of course, we see that as New Covenant believers as well. Paul says, put on. So we're putting aside filthiness. We also see that it says, put away rampant wickedness. You'll notice I've been preaching more from, from ESV these days, but for the brothers that have an NASB Bible, the sisters that have an NASB Bible this morning, it'll say something slightly different. Instead of saying filthy wickedness, or sorry, rampant wickedness, it would say any wickedness that remains. The idea is a cup that's overflowing. And so it, it could refer, the Greek's a little ambiguous here, it could refer to the part that's overflowing or just the part that's left at the bottom of the glass. But either way, what we know as believers, that that wickedness, has no place in our lives. The message is the same either way. Put away the filthiness, put away the wickedness, and then it says, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, James does this whole thing in opposite order, right? We actually receive the, the implanted word first, and then as a, a product of that work, we work out the filthiness of our lives. That's called sanctification. That's what God does. And the word meekness is really important. Brother John would define that as power under control. But another word of explaining that is a, is a meekness that is humble and that is recognizing of our utter dependence on that which we're about to receive. Our utter dependence on the word. You see, I should back up for just a minute and go back to the expression slow to anger. Slow to anger is a, is a terminology that's used first in Scripture in Exodus chapter 34. And it's used in an encounter between God and Moses. And God describes himself. And he gives a list of characteristics. He says, The Lord, the Lord your God, who is slow to anger, compassionate, full of mercy. A merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You see, James was written to Jewish believers, believers who would have been well-versed not only in what James had just said, they may not have also been familiar just with the words of Christ, but they certainly would have been those who had heard and understood the Old Testament. So they would have understood that this description of slow to anger is one that describes their God. So if God, as they know him, is gracious, is merciful, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, how then would we receive his word? Consider for a moment the fact that in that very statement where, where God says that to Moses, he's giving the people the law for the second time. 
They discarded it the first time and he patiently and lovingly gave it to them again. And for us as new covenant believers, we're constantly needing to be reminded of his word. He is slow to anger. He is patient. So it's with that that we understand receiving with meekness. God, give me your word again. It's been implanted in my life. It's, it's brought me to a place of salvation. But man, this filthiness is still working its way out. This wickedness is still remaining. It's still present. So I need your word. If we're to draw near to God's word as people who believe we, we've heard it all before, we're already experts, we've already studied the book of James a hundred times, that's not meekness. And we need to revisit whether or not the word is, has been implanted in such a way. And look how James describes this implanted word. He, he adds another statement at the end. He says, this word, it's able to save your souls. There's a, a quote I want to share with you. And before Elizabeth puts it up, I want to give a preface to how this, this quote is shared. This quote is from a guy whose last name is Doriani, wrote a commentary on the book of James, and he's a preacher. And he said, someone would come up to him and say, how did you know that I needed that word today? And his response is, I didn't know you needed that word today. It's God's word. I preached it, and it's going to do what it's going to do. Look at the quote now. You could put that up, sister. It says, the word saves in an ongoing sense. How did we know? We didn't. God knew. He put gospel truth into his word. As we redeclare that word, it saves souls. Pay careful attention to this. It saves from the soul's past sinfulness. It saves in the soul's present battle with sin. And it saves for the soul's future life with God. The power lies in the word, not in the relationship and not in the preacher. You see that ongoing way in which God saves? That ongoing way in which God sanctifies is on display. Just a couple of examples. If you wanted to note scriptures briefly, Luke 19, 9, we see the, the once and done part of salvation where we're justified. We see Jesus in the house of Zacchaeus and he says to Zacchaeus as he finishes up dinner, he says, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' sanctification no doubt just started at that occasion, but his salvation was secure. In the ongoing sense, we see how Hebrews talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And of course, we understand that our salvation is ultimately consummated in glory. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. At verse 22, we now understand by this point, as James builds, that salvation is ultimately through his will as we're reborn. And now it needs to have its ongoing sanctifying work, but this requires something of us. That saving justification is through Christ alone. Nothing you or I can do to add to or take away from that. But sanctification is different. Sanctification now requires care for this seed that has been implanted in our lives. We have to weed around it. Pull out any root of bitterness. We have to respond. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, another word of, of saying, be a doer, 
is to be obedient. Being obedient is sometimes different than just doing. We can do a lot of things without really doing them. We look at the notion of, of examining our motives. I think Brother Ty mentioned the, uh, the idea of speeding this morning, right? The, the, the speeding that we do as we, we uh, zip down the highway. And there's a good example. We can follow the speed limit and look like we're good law-abiding citizens, but we might forget why we're doing that. We're doing that because it's about safety and love for our neighbor and keeping other people safe. It's not a fear of a consequence. It's obeying because of the intention behind that limit. And for us as believers, when we are being hearers of the word and then doers, that obedience comes from a rightful understanding of why God has put that particular command in place. It's not just to follow the rules to check the box or to not get a ticket. It's to honor the heart of God as he gives us those commandments. That's why it says deceiving yourselves. Another word for deceiving yourself is defrauding. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, defrauding yourself. You see, you're missing out on the joy of living out your Christian life with the work of the word in your life if you're just following the rules to follow the rules. Because following the rules, that's self-righteousness. You're trying to earn your own salvation by following rules. But we're instead responding with a loving obedience to God by being doers. In verse 23, James goes a bit further into this, and he wants to make sure that this is super vivid, so he gives us an example. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Why do we look at mirrors? My wife and I started a food processing business overseas a number of years ago. And as we were trying to put together a, a list of all the things that we needed to have in a, in a factory environment to comply with the laws, one of the things that we were required to have is a mirror. Now, this is a food processing facility, and nobody in this facility was going to care for or weigh down anybody from the general public. So a mirror seems like kind of a funny thing to have to have. These are people who are processing food. What does it matter? Upon further in investigation, it's because the mirror is there to allow the employee to begin their shift and to identify any filth, any dirtiness, before they would come into a clean environment of handling food. The purpose of the mirror is to identify any, any dirt, any filth, any hair that's going to fall out into the food. It's not about vanity. We can think of so many things where mirror, mirror on the wall, right? It's about looking at, at how good we look. But that's not the purpose of the mirror. The purpose of the mirror, as James is explaining it, is to help us understand how bad we look, right? This is not a reflection of our attractiveness. This is a reflection of identifying things in our life that need to be corrected as the work of the word moves in us. It says he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror adding to that, that notion of what a mirror is for, the, the size of the mirror makes a difference. I once visited a pastor in the southern portion of Honduras, and he was very poor. And the only mirror he had in his house was ripped off of a car. It was a rearview mirror, and he had it bailing wired to some slats of wood that served in his bathroom. And the mirror was that big, and it was dingy, and it was dirty, and it wasn't nearly big enough to help me understand whether or not I had something in my teeth after lunch. 
Likewise, when we, we look, at, look at this analogy and we understand the purpose of the mirror, we might understand that the mirror that we are using could be a bit distorted. You see, we come to the word of God and we seek to rightly understand it, to rightly interpret it and apply it to our lives. But oftentimes we'll come across Christian books that, that bring about a perspective that's not biblical. We'll substitute our time in God's word for some book that somebody wrote. And, and perhaps what we're getting there isn't solid doctrine. It isn't true. And so when we go to evaluate ourselves in light of that word, it might be one of those mirrors that makes us look a little bit thinner <laughs> or, or make, make us look a little bit taller. Likewise, how much time we spend looking in the mirror is a big indicator of how effective the word of God is going to be in our lives. Do we just glance at the mirror as we're running our, our way out the door? Or like some of you, do you spend hours looking at the mirror? But the, the purpose of this example as James is giving it to us is to help us understand that the mirror is not about helping us affirm how good we look, but it's to remove filth and imperfection from our lives. Let's look at verse 23 and then 24 together. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. This notion of forgetfulness isn't just a, a forgetting what your appearance is looking like, it's forgetting to deal with the soil in our lives. We might identify something and then choose to be indifferent to it, or to justify it, or to excuse it. It's not about forgetfulness, but failing to allow God's word to allow us to be properly sanctified. This requires discipline. This requires action on the life of the believer. Spend time examining carefully the word of God and allowing it to reveal to us those areas in our life that are yet unyielded to him. To work out those areas in our life where there is still remaining filth and remaining wickedness. Anybody want to get rid of their mirror yet? This is hard. This is hard. We draw near to the word of God and it, and it builds us up and it brings us joy, but it also breaks us down. It reminds us continually of those areas of our life that we need to surrender through the power of the Holy Spirit. At verse 25, James changes up the analogy a little bit and he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This concept of the, of the perfect law and the law of liberty, we'll get into a little bit more next week. In fact, if you just skip down to the very bottom of chapter 2 of James, we see the, uh, the notion of the law of liberty being present here. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, the perfect law, as James is using the word perfect, we mentioned this early on. Perfection has to do with maturity. It's something that's coming to completion. So what James is describing here is the, the completed law. And what do we find in Matthew chapter 5? What does Jesus say about the law? I didn't come to abolish the law. 
Not a dot or an iota will pass away. I came to perfect, to complete the law. And James heard the God-man fulfilling the law, making it perfect. And so James says, not only have you heard about God's character from Exodus 34, not only have you heard about the law given in, in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, but you've, you've heard of it from the mouth of the God-man himself. Anyone who looks into the perfect law, this is having heard Christ's explanation, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. That's exactly what Jesus was describing in the passage that, that Sean read from Luke chapter 6. Anyone who hears my word and does it, I'll tell you what he's like. Anyone who responds to that word of truth is like a man who builds his house on a solid foundation. James is saying, if you've heard that and you've built your life on that, you're a doer who obeys. You're a doer who acts. You'll be blessed in your doing. That blessing notion, of course, connects us back to the Beatitudes. And it connects us back to, to chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the, the blessing that comes through hearing the perfect law, through applying it. A note of positivity from James. And then he switches gears on us again, and he gives us a, a warning. Verse 26. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It has no value. You see, throughout Christ's ministry, there were uh, multitudes that followed after him. The term disciple is used to refer to a, a large group, and we know that on a number of occasions, Jesus had these large groups following after him. And you might be impressed. Wow, what a huge throng. You might see a church that's considered a mega church. It's full of people. But the results, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Where we started in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, Jesus explains that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And he gives a clear understanding that you judge a, a fruit, you judge a tree by the fruit that it gives. In that same fruit processing facility that I mentioned to you, we began to, to throw out the pits of mangoes. And those mangoes would take hold in the soil and begin to grow. And they were beautiful and they were leafy and they were green. And we were so excited. We were like, we got free mango trees. I did not know that you can plant a mango tree and it will not give you mangoes. You have to have it engrafted. So you've got all these beautiful leafy trees and not a single mango. What a disappointment. <laughs> but what does Jesus do with a tree that doesn't bear fruit? Is he disappointed? Remember the fig tree? He cursed it. Any tree that doesn't bear fruit, cut it down. Cast it into the fire. This religion is worthless. What a harsh word. James is, is using that as a word of warning. Because to hear this from James is one thing, but to hear it from the mouth of our Savior, from the mouth of God, Jesus says, 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. There are times throughout Scripture where Christ makes it clear, failure to bear fruit results in a separation from him. And for us as believers, if we receive the word of God, we are in him and therefore need to be bearing fruit. We've been given that seed. It's in us. And in the process of sanctification, he needs to be pruning us through trials. He needs to be cutting back any branch that doesn't bear fruit so that we would yield and produce a harvest of righteousness. So be careful, it says, if anyone doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. Because what's coming out of his heart reveals, what's coming out of his mouth reveals what's really in the heart. The notion of how to control our tongues comes up extensively in the next chapter of James. We won't go into it today. We'll get into the whole notion of the, the biblical theology of controlling your tongue. James has a great deal to say about it. But the warning that we see in today's text is, be slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce that righteousness of God. And also, if our mouth is left unchecked and the things that are coming out of our mouth are revealing our heart and there's no fruit, that religion is worthless. Religion is an outward expression of an inward worship. An outward expression of an inward worship. And so what's coming out of our mouth is revealing that there is no inward worship. There's nothing there. Then James takes us to verse 27. And this is where we see the work of the word in a, in a new and unusual light. We see a change of gears here, and, and James is going to tell us what the right outward expression of inward worship looks like. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before, the, before God the Father is this. And I'm just going to pause there because you see the words again, pure and undefiled. These are used standing in contrast to what we see earlier, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. You see, they're, they're opposites of one another. So as the word works in us, it works out filthiness, it works out rampant wickedness, and then allows us to produce a worship that is both pure and undefiled. And James takes these Jewish believers that are receiving this letter, and he takes them to the heart of Old Testament law. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Throughout the, the Pentateuch, we see countless reminders to care for three groups of people in specific. The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You'll notice that James leaves out one of the three groups here. Which one does he leave out? He leaves out the sojourner. That's kind of interesting because he's writing to a group of people who are sojourners. And it's probably for that reason he leaves it out. He's writing to a group of people who were themselves foreigners in a land that they were displaced. These are, are Jewish believers that have been moved away from their, their land, are under the heavy hand of Roman law and others who would seek to persecute them. So it would be kind of interesting for them to extend mercy to a group that they're already a part of. And so for that reason, I believe, James focuses on these other two groups of people. Orphans and widows. 
The term orphan, by the way, can also be fatherless. So it could also include a, a child of a, of a single parent home or a widow. But what we can see in, in Scripture, and we'll look at a couple of examples together from the book of Deuteronomy, is that God has specific instructions for caring for these groups of people because they're the most marginalized. They're the people who are the most in need of mercy. Go with me, if you would, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We might have it on a slide. We're trying to learn better about not making everybody change pages so often. I'm going to turn there because I'm going to start back at verse 17, a verse or two before what you have on your slides. And we'll see here that God gives two separate types of instructions with regards to caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. At verse 17, he says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. I'll stop there before we go to the verse that's on the slide and say, Look how God juxtaposes this by saying, Remember that you were in need of mercy. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. See, the response to care for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner is a response to being a recipient of God's mercy. So it's in light of this that we understand all of what James is telling us here. We are recipients of God's mercy. Remember, we're receiving the implanted word with meekness. Continuing from verse 19 of Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow." Look at verse 22. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see, there's two different things that God's talking about there. He's talking about corrupting the justice for these groups of people that are, that are on the fringe. And then he talks about providing for them. The notion of beating your olive tree, it was to leave some left over so that others could come through and glean. That there would be a financial provision for these people that God loves, for these people that, that God has shown mercy to and that we are called to show mercy to. Verse 22 says it again. For the second time, he says, you shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt and therefore I command you to do this. You see, going back to the mirror, we see in our lives the things that need to be removed, the things that need to be worked out. If we're not careful to use the word of God as a mirror and we use it wrongly, we forget the call to mercy. We forget that God has been faithful in helping us remove the filth in our lives so far. We used to be back in Egypt in sin. We used to be so filthy that he couldn't look upon us. But through the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, he's washed our sins away and can look upon us with the righteousness of God the Father. Because of that, we're called to respond to that in how we care 
for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. One more verse I want to share with you with, with regards to this last verse of James chapter 1, and that's from the book of Zechariah. This verse comes with it a stern reminder that the work of the word requires a response on, on behalf of its hearers. Zechariah chapter 7, I'll begin reading at verse 8. And it says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. You see, this is one of the minor prophets. The people of Israel have been unfaithful to all the law that was given to them. And they're now beginning to endure an ongoing consequence of their failure to apply the word to their lives. Look at, at verse 10 again. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, or the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the word of hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. You see that paradigm, what God is doing there? And you see how that lines up with God, what God is telling us through the book of James? He, he says, in the words of Christ, he who has ears, let him hear. And he says, be quick to hear. And then he says, obey, be a doer of the word. And here in Zechariah, a preview to what James in his day is communicating is that there are dire consequences of not obeying the word of God. You see what God says there? He says, hey, you're not going to listen to me. I'm not going to listen to you. What grief and pain that ought to cause us as believers. Our interruption with God is, is interrupted. The, the communication with him is impeded because of sin and a failure to obey the word of God. So what do we do with that? On two different occasions, we've been warned in this passage that if we don't put away that anger, it impedes our relationship with God, right? Don't, don't even take your offering until you've resolved an issue with your brother or your sister in Christ. And now here we're told... If you're not showing mercy to those who are in need of mercy, if you're not caring for those who are in need of care, not listening, says the Lord Almighty. Those are heavy words. And it's because of that that we are needful of God and his Holy Spirit to rightly apply the word of God. You see, we could go to church Sunday after Sunday. We could even read our Bible every day. And if we fail to obey it and allow it to produce in us the fruit of righteousness? We've missed the mark. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit to do that work. We're dependent on God. That's why, as we look at what the preacher said there about the, the, the saving work of the preaching of the word, it's God that brings that about. You have homework this week, just so you're ready. Hope everybody's ready. Matthew chapter 13. We'll look at the, the Mark account right now. Mark chapter 4, but you're 
responsibility is to your opportunity, I should say. Uh, no one's being graded on this. It's for your benefit. Is to read through the Matthew 13 account of the parable of the sower. But we'll look just briefly at Mark chapter 4, where Mark gives a, an abbreviated account of the same parable. In verse 9 of, of Mark chapter 4, he says, And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, in verse 10, he says, When he was alone, and those who were around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and the ones and these are the ones that are along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground, and the ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on a good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. You see, James is giving us a commentary on what Jesus is preaching. He's giving us an explanation of how that work of the word takes place in our lives. It's God who plants that seed. It's him who implants it in our lives. As we come to accept it, bearing fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This morning, we need to, to come into the, the presence of God's word and check ourselves for fruit. Has this seed just sprouted up real quick and, and, and maybe we have a, a risk of not having understood what it is that God has done for us? through saving faith in Jesus Christ? Or maybe we're in a season of life where the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires are choking the fruit that the word of God is needing to produce in our lives. That's an examination to check ourselves, to, to not only look for roots of bitterness, but also the cares of the world, reaching in and encroaching on what otherwise ought to be a fruitful garden. I want to end today by looking at John chapter 13. It is needful for us every week to look to our, our supreme example. Not just looking at the word of God, but looking at the word. God becoming flesh. The word becoming flesh. And we have Christ with his disciples, his most intimate disciples, and we have in, in John chapter 13, we have Jesus, his last supper, having just washed his disciples' feet. Start at verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
What an interesting question. Do you understand what just transpired? I mean, they're reeling. They, they just had their feet washed by Jesus. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See this example of mercy? Just like James ties in the, the mercy and the compassion that we show to the fatherless and the widow, as we extend mercy, remembering that we are once in the Egypt of our sins, we've been extended that mercy, extended in, in, in kind to others. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have truly, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's our, our call to respond. We see Christ having humbled himself and extended to us a mercy that we are so undeserving of, a grace that we can't even imagine, much, much less appreciate. So let us receive with meekness, with humility, that word that it would produce in us what Christ desires. If you've not yet come to understand that, that Christ has saved you through his word, you have an opportunity to receive that seed, to allow it to bear fruit in your lives and, and to explore how it is that a continual study of God's word will allow you to become more like him. And for those of us who are in Christ, who are in the beloved brothers and sisters category, call to action. Let the word of truth sanctify you through and through and produce in us an obedience that honors Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you that it is eternal. We thank you that each and every verse is related to the whole of your word, to redemptive history, to the truth of who you are, and to the reality of, of who we need to become through the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that your word serves as a mirror to identify in us sin and filth. It serves as a mirror to remind us, Lord God, of the grace and the mercy that you have extended to us so that we can in turn live that out. Father God, I just pray that we would be a church that demonstrates mercy, that demonstrates obedience, and that with each trial, with each, with each occasion, we would live out a practical obedience to your word. God, convict us, draw us into, into quiet places in our homes and in our busy routines this week that we might examine our own hearts with the mirror of your word. Allow it to identify in us ways in which we need to surrender ourselves to you. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God. And that's our prayer this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen.